Our scripture this morning is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 12. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This is the word of the Lord. taking a break from kind of our normal practice of going through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse to remember and be refreshed in what we prioritize at Sojourn, what we most value and care about. And we start today with our first priority, the, the Bible. Then we'll go through the gospel, community, and mission as well in the next uh, three or four weeks. We'll do these, base the first three off of them from the book of Acts And then the last one will come from the Great Commission. But we are convinced that we must prioritize the Bible. As one author says, churches live, grow, and flourish by God's word, but they languish and perish without it. And the centrality of God's word is clearly demonstrated when we open up the the scripture, we look to the early church in the book of Acts, and we see what they do. This is a group of people that are fresh off the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so what do they do next? How do they carry out the mission that Jesus has given them, sent them on? Well, in the book of Acts, we see the centrality of the word in that mission. And that that word, God's word, was trusted as effective to do this mission, to carry it out, and as enough or sufficient for that mission. You see, they seem to operate with the understanding that they too live, grow, and flourish by the word of God, but that they would not exist without it. 
And so we see this major theme in the book of Acts, the Word. The Word, that's the short term, is it's the Old Testament in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. More specifically, one commentator says that it's the message of, of God enshrined in the Old Testament and exemplified in the life and the teaching of Jesus. So this is what they're putting before people as they go on their mission. It's used, the Word is used 30 times in the book of Acts. So it begins with the very conception of the church, right? We're, we're talking about the very foundation of the people of God, the New Testament, as it creates this new people who are living in, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's this foundation for all that they did, and it's the Word. And it starts in chapter 1. You know, they, they replaced Judas as an apostle, and why did they do that? Why did they make that decision? They had a... Old Testament text that they used, they referred to and said, here's what we're doing here. In chapter 2, you know the famous sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost. Well, he preaches from the book of Joel. He uses a psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 40, or psalm, and then he, in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 41, here's what he says to them as he's hearing and preaching the word. It says in verse 41, those who received, what they receive? His word. The word that Peter preached. And so it's clear that the ministry of the word in chapter 2 wasn't a fluke because here's what we see go on for the rest of the book of Acts. In chapter 3, Peter preaches in Solomon's portico and he, he preaches this great sermon of biblical theology. And in chapter 4, verse 4, here's what it says. It says, many of those who what? Heard the word, believed it. It changed their lives. There are thousands that were changed here. They believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And you go on in chapter 4, and here's what happened as a result of their preaching of the word. Thousands were changed, but they were also detained and questioned. They were told in chapter 4, verse 18, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In verse 21 of chapter 4, they were threatened. They had further threatened them. They were threatened for teaching and preaching the word. And so as we see the early start of the church, we're seeing that the ministry of the word not only was successful, but then it also brought a lot of heat. It was specifically targeted and threatened. And so from the very beginning, the, the priority of the word of God was threatened, was under attack. It is being tested. And here's what their response was as they were under threat for their preaching and teaching the word. Here's what they do in response. They pray. And in their prayer, they appeal to Psalm chapter 2, the, the God who holds the nations in derision. And here's what they say in chapter 4, verse 29. They prayed, now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to what? Speak your word with all boldness. The word four chapters in, and already thousands have been transformed by the word, preached, taught, and heard, received, and that word had been threatened. They said, stop preaching, teaching that word. And so the ministry of the word is under attack, but they had seen its power and how it saved many souls. So clearly at this point, they're, they're conscious of the priority of the word, of the centrality of the word and the place it needs to have within their setting within their church. They knew of its necessity, and their prayer shows that they have this conviction that no matter what threat might come to them, 
that the ministry of the word must continue. That's what they prayed for. God, we need this work to continue. Look upon their threats and grant us to continue to speak your word. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you know that it didn't take much longer for that conviction of the ministry of the word to be tested again. So in chapter 3 and 4, we have some pressure kind of without, outside the church, putting pressure on them to get rid of this ministry of the word. But the, the pressure then switches a few times in the book of Acts. It starts in chapter 6 to be pressure from within. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And you can imagine the scene, right? They, they've converted thousands by the preaching ministry, and that creates like an administrative headache to say the least. Like now they've got to figure out what are we going to do with all these people and how do we take care of them the best? And as they're working this process out, because they don't have it all figured out the best, the early church is somewhat of a mess. As they're kind of working to figure it out, like there's a, a significant problem that comes up. Poor administration. A serious problem with, it seems, preferential treatment of certain people. It's a significant controversy within the church, not without. And it has to be addressed. And so here's what the apostles do. Verse 2, the 12, that is the 12 apostles, they summon the full number of the disciples. Several thousand, right? And said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, it's implied here that the primary ministry for these apostles, the way that they understood their primary ministry was a ministry of the word. Their way of carrying out the great commission that Jesus has given them to make disciples was a ministry of the word. See in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. It says that... Uh, you are a household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Both, both of them we see as, and need to be understood as offices of the word of God, proclaimers of the word of God. So they're doing foundational work here, and they understand it to be foundational work. And, and what do they see as essential to their foundational work? Ministry of the word. It's not right for us to give up. The ministry of the word. The foundation that they are laying for the church is a foundation laid by the ministry of the word of God. So much so that they say it's not right for us to give it up. So they continue, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they, they understand the, the consequences of what's going on here. Like, we have to bring some organization to this thing. We need to care for our people well. We need to make sure that we employ some of the gifts that people have so that we can take care of one another well. So we have to get this thing going. We've got to bring good people to bear on this problem because it's important. And yet, in their addition of some ministries and organization and of addressing some real needs and serious controversy, here's what they don't do. They don't subtract from their primary ministry, a ministry of the word. And they include in there that goes alongside all the time, word and prayer. In chapter 6, verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. This wasn't just their idea that they come up with and everyone's like, I don't know about that. Everyone is all in. 
Because they too had been transformed by that word, by that very ministry. The disciples, they, they love it. The disciples at this point are becoming self-conscious. They're grasping the idea of the importance of the ministry of the word. The, the church, that is the apostles, these disciples, are for the ministry of service. They make sure that they get some good gifted men that they can apply to make sure they carry out that side of the ministry of the church. But they don't do it at the expense of the ministry of the word. And one author sees in these chapters in Acts some of Satan's strategies against the church. He says his first and crudest tactic was physical violence or persecution. You saw that in chapter 3 and 4. He tried to crush the church by force. His second was a more subtle tactic, was moral compromise. So having failed to destroy the church from the outside, he tried to corrupt it from the inside through the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. That's chapter 5. And then you see the third one, subtlest tactic, was social distraction. He tried to deflect the apostles from their priority task of preaching and prayer. And what do they do each time? They roundly defeat every single one of these strategies. How? By prioritizing the ministry of the word. Now, as you have several thousand people that have been changed by the word, if you have uh, some poor administration, some needs aren't being met, if there was ever a time to shift your focus and to figure things out, it's here. The thousands have been won in every kind of category that we could put on them. You're like, you've had success. You've done it. Thousands have been changed. They're probably from all over the place. Like, you've almost reached the nations in a few short sermons. Now, you have success here, but you've got a problem. So now what you need to do is you've got to alter the strategy. Maintain what you have. Build it up a little bit so that everyone is doing things the right way. Or they can say as they face significant pressures from without, as they have real problems from within, like maybe it's time that the focus needs to shift from this hardcore ministry of the word that we've been giving ourselves to to something else. Maybe they need to do, you've heard the saying, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Maybe shift the other side, like, okay, let's just preach the gospel without words now. Let's shift to that kind of ministry. Or, or there's some people, that, some widows that aren't being cared for. Let's focus, shift the focus to mercy ministry. Maybe open a health clinic. That seems to be working well for them. If you've read the book of Acts, early on they, they heal a man who's born lame. Like they, they are doing some pretty great things here. They have great success with that. Maybe we can focus on the social and cultural renewal aspect of the church and the role that we're supposed to play there. But instead, they respond to both pressures without and pressures within that it's not right for us to give up the ministry of the word and that we will devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer. Leading this to this conclusion that if you are looking for a picture of the earthly church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal and strategies to serve the community in Jesus' name, you won't find them in Acts. That's not to say that any of those things are wrong and sinful or shouldn't be done. But if you're looking for preaching and teaching and the centrality of the word, this is your book. One summer I worked as a camp counselor at a Christian sports and adventure camp, and I was a ropes course instructor in the afternoon during their time when they could go do whatever they wanted to do. And, and one of the things we always did as a ropes course instructor is you had to know how to just keep people connected to the course so that they don't have major issues. So you got to figure out how to put on a harness, how to make sure that harness is attached above them to the cable. So you, you've got to know all those things. So you have to know if you're going to go through a ropes course, so you're going to be attached all the time from a harness to a cable above you. 
just as the picture shows, that blue line is kind of attached to the cable above. So you're going to switch obstacles. You're going to go through things. You might go through a net, a balance beam. You might go through a zip line, all those kind of things. But the whole time, even though you might be going around poles and switching ropes, like you're always attached to the rope above. Or if you have a good ropes course instructor, they make sure that you're always attached to the cable above so that you won't fall, so that you don't have actual serious danger upon you, right? That cable, that one cable above you, it keeps you from tragedy. So there's going to be all sorts of obstacles. You can still, with that rope, you can fall over. Like you can see, this girl could fall over and hit her side. Like she could still get hurt, but she won't fall entirely if she's still attached to the cable. In the church, they had obstacles to navigate, things to go around. They had to change some things up as they're trying to figure out how we deal with all the stuff that's going on and what God has put in front of us. But they were always attached to the cable above, the ministry of the word of God. They knew not to unhook from that cable lest they get into some serious danger. And their response is instructive for us as well. Because if we think like the book of Acts is is pressures that they face and we're not going to face pressures from without and from within, we we know that's obviously not right. We're going to have all sorts of pressures. From without and, unfortunately, from within there's going to be pressures. Some of those are good, some of them not so good. There's going to be problems to address. Satan is still going to rage. His strategies are still his strategies. But the church must maintain the connection to the ministry of the Word of God. There may need to be some fresh innovations in ministry. We might need to relook at some things and reshape how we, how we organize and administer certain things. We might need to add or take away some programs, but we must keep no matter what the ministry of the word. It's central. It's necessary for us. You see, going back to the ropes course, what we also know is that when you're going through obstacles, like your natural instinct almost is to hold the rope that connects your harness to the cable above. Like you, everybody wants to grab onto that. It feels a little bit more secure when you grab onto that. But your grip on that rope actually doesn't keep you safe at all. It means nothing to your safety. It doesn't help your safety one bit. It might make you feel more comfortable, but it is not going to keep anything from happening whatsoever. So you can grip as hard as you want, and it doesn't matter. What's vital is what's actually holding on to you. You see, the ministry of the Word is is kind of two-sided in this sense. Like, yes, as the church, we maintain it. We hold on to it, but in all reality, it's holding on to us. It's not the grip on the rope, it's quite the reverse that actually keeps us from avoiding ultimate danger. The strength of that cable, its hold on you is what matters, and the same with the ministry of the Word. It holds us. And if the ministry of the Word isn't holding us, church, then we are open to falling, ultimately. To falling away. You see this in so many places where they have lost convictions from biblical truth, and what happens to those places? Nothing holds them anymore. And so they die away slowly. There are better things to do on Sunday if this word isn't true. Like, go play golf, go have your hobby or whatever. If this isn't true, there are more things to do to spend your day if it's just another hobby. But if it's actually truth, if it's holding on to us and we're holding on to it, then there's no better place to be. We have to hold on to the centrality and the necessity of the ministry of the word. The early church did, and they made the right call. Uh, as they continue through the book of Acts, you trace the ministry of the word, and it wasn't just the apostles that knew of its centrality and necessity, its effectiveness. Listen to what happens in chapter 6, verse 7, after they've addressed the serious controversy and problem. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Skip over to chapter 8. 
where you see the heading in chapter 8, Paul is ravaging the church. Here's what happens. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and churches would come up from this, as you will see in the book of Acts. In chapter 12, verse 24, it says, the word of God increased and multiplied. In chapter 13, verse 49, it says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And finally, in chapter 19, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So again, if you're looking for a, a book that shows you the ministry of the word and its power and effectiveness and necessity, you're looking at the book of Acts. Everywhere it goes, it multiplies. Everywhere it goes, it increases. So much so that the, the success of the church is almost put in terms of the word. Like, it's the word that multiplied. It did not even say, like, here's how many people came in. The word was doing work. It was effective. As the word went, so did the church. And so there's that refrain, the word increased and multiplied. That is to say, the book of Acts is showing us the, the mission of Jesus is going forward in the ministry of the word of God. Where the word goes, the mission of Jesus goes. And this wasn't just their, their early church strategy. This was their strategy for planning churches as well. This was their method. Paul pulls back the curtain for us on the ministry of the word in Ephesus, where he spent roughly three years of his life. And Ephesus was a rough place. If you remember the story of the sons of Sceva, they were there, hanging out, doing their thing. Magic arts were there. At the end, when they're converted, they burn their magic books, which is pretty crazy. All right, there's the home of the, the temple to Artemis is there. There are idol makers there that are very obsessive about their work. They make sure that no one kind of infringes upon their business, and when they do, they make big trouble. There are riots in Ephesus, and, and so Paul goes into this place, and what does he do? Well, what's his method of ministry? How are you going to reach that place? And what are you going to rely on as you go into this rough setting? What's your strategy? Well, I'm going to look as, it, as he speaks to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, verse 27. This is later after he's already been there and gone, but he tells the Ephesian elders, he kind of, again, pulls the curtain back to show what he did there. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. That is the content of the gospel, the Old Testament background on which it's built, and the application of that for them. All right, if you want to know about the whole counsel of God, a lot of it's written down for us as Paul. Like He is kind of distilled out to us. Here's the whole counsel of God. He gives it to us in letters, like in letters to the Ephesian church or the Philippian church. All sorts of letters. He shows us what is the whole counsel of God. It's full of not just a, a one thing. It's full of breadth and width and height and depth that are, that are almost unfathomable as we think about the greatness of our God and what he has done. I mean, that is the whole counsel of God. And what does he do with that counsel? He declares it to them. He gives it to them. He preaches it. He teaches it to them during his time there. In other words, he gives himself to his three years there in this rough place to a ministry of the word. He is relying in this rough place on the word's power, on the word's efficiency and sufficiency to advance the mission of God in Ephesus. He doesn't rely on any other thing but the word. He doesn't rely on a healing ministry. If you saw in Acts chapter 19, 11 and 12, Seems like this could be a ministry you could rely on, Paul. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. So maybe what you need to do is give yourself to these three years to a ministry of healing. Now think of that as effectiveness in Ephesus. Like if you're just sending out these, 
these pieces of clothing that can heal people. Man, like, give yourself to that. Or maybe, since this is a place that likes idol makers and they have a temple of Artemis, they're like, maybe give yourself to something a little bit more entertaining than kind of the dry and dusty Old Testament that you're kind of talking about in light of Jesus. Give yourself to something that's going to keep the people and really compel them. But Paul gives himself to the ministry of the Word. He gives himself to the teaching, the whole counsel of God. It's for their good. Or the glory of God. And it wasn't just a part of his church planning strategy. It was the entire fabric of it. If you look back a few verses in chapter 20, in verse 18, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. The, the fabric of the church then was a ministry of the word that wasn't just a public thing. It wasn't just when they were gathered all together. It was even from house to house. Like everywhere Paul goes, the ministry is the ministry of the word, and that was the ministry of the church. It was a public ministry. It was a private ministry. It was so important that it worked itself down into the very fabric of their lives, whether they were at home, whether they were together, whether they were scattered, wherever they were, it was working itself down into that place. That was the ministry of the word. He was so committed to it that he says he didn't let anything, not tears or trials, deter him from that ministry. Sounds a lot like the apostles in chapter 6. Nothing should knock him off of the ministry of the word. And it's clear that Paul didn't want his ministry of the word to terminate with him. That he wanted it to continue. That's why he says to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, one of the verses that we hold dear around here. He says to them that he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, all those are ministries of the word, primarily, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. If Paul didn't think that it just terminated with him, that this was unique to him, that he should give himself to a ministry of the word and that that should go from house to house, he thought that there are lots that God is going to give for the very purpose that the church might be built up, they might be equipped. I think his methodology is further clarified in back-to-back accounts of proclaiming his word and planting churches. In the book of Acts, those go hand in hand. Where they went planting the seed of the word of God, upspring churches. That was their methodology. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17. It says in verse 1 that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollon, I knew I was going to do this when Kim said these earlier. I was going to mess them up all together. Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. That's the one I know how to say where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And what does Paul do? It's just like it says it as as if this was his routine, and it was, as was his custom. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. There he gives us a peek into his message, that it's the, the Old Testament in light of Jesus, that he's not looking at it as if Jesus hasn't come. He's looking through those lens back to them so he can make a compelling argument. His custom is then to come in and proclaim what? Scripture. A ministry of the word. The reception of it? Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews... 
In other words, it hit a, a broad category of people. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. It's not a great reception. Oh, yeah, he got some, but also now there's a, a mob forming and there's rioting. And obviously they're threatening some sort of physical pain. And this isn't the first time that Paul has experienced this. Earlier in Acts, Paul's preaching got him stoned. That's a pretty poor reception. He's been imprisoned for his ministry of the word, and we could go on. Here he gets a mob and an uproar, the threat of pain. So again, Paul, here it is. It's, it's time to tweak your message. Maybe Luke is musical, like, spend a little more time on the music. Make it a little louder. Like, get the band, that will really soften them up a little bit and then come in and be a little shorter. Give yourself to mercy ministry or healing ministry. It's obviously effective. It's working, Paul. Like, even clothing that touches you heals people. Like, you don't have to set the city in an uproar. Not many people are mad at you because you've healed them. So just start doing that. What does he do? Verse 10. They sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they tweaked their message, shift their focus. Now they went to the Jewish synagogue. As it was his custom. And why continue the ministry of the word? Why continue the consistent pattern of proclaiming Scripture everywhere you go, even though most places you go, it leads to your imprisonment, your beating, people hate you, there's mobs, there's riots. Why continue? Because Paul is certain of its power. Amen. He's certain of its sufficiency. He doesn't turn to other means to continue his mission. He gives himself to the ministry of the Word. The, the Thessalonians who had rejected Paul's message even those who didn't agree with it, didn't receive it, saw its power. Did you hear what they said? It's turning the world upside down. The Thessalonians who did receive Paul's message experienced that same power. Listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, it did come in word, it must come in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved, to be, we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and to Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians, even though that number might not have been as large as they would have liked, they received Paul's message. It was a powerful message. Paul knows its power. And that's why everywhere, even though he had a riot form there, he goes to Berea and he says, let's proclaim that. 
That's what we give ourselves to. He knows its effectiveness. He knows that it's sufficient. And so he makes it his priority, his custom to everywhere he goes to go in and proclaim the word of God. Some of these things are why we make it a priority here at Sojourn. I mean, why the emphasis on on corporate gatherings where we, we gather around the word of God together? Why do we have home groups that, that do sermon discussion, and we open up the Word and we think about it, how it can apply to our life? This is one probably many of us. Why, why do we keep kids that are foreign over in our service? And we've asked that too. Like, <laughs> Here's why. Because we trust in the power of the Word. We, we trust that it's sufficient. Whether that's in age-segregated Contexts or not, we, we trust in the very word of God and its sufficiency. Uh, before we started a youth home group, so this is several years ago, we kind of met to kind of like, hey, what should we do about this? And, and I heard this comment, said, well, they don't have a plan. It's partially true. Didn't really know exactly how we were going to do this, but we did have a plan, didn't we? Our plan was the word of God always. We have never shifted from that plan, whether that was in age-segregated context or not. The plan was to teach and preach the Word of God. The plan was for all of us to be gathered around it. That was the plan. It was the Word. And now, guess what? We have a youth home group. And guess what their continuous plan is? It's the Word of God. They have nothing new there. They do something that we think Christians did early in the book of Acts. They, they gather around the Word and they pray. It's Word and prayer, ministry. And man, is it effective. The youth started with how many? Like maybe six? How many do we have? Every, every Wednesday, every Thursday morning, I walk downstairs and I get to see this huge circle of chairs that was there the night before, and it's such a blessing. Because they're not having pizza on Wednesday night the night before and playing dodgeball. Not that those things are sinful and wrong. All that they do is they say, all right, we talked about Mark, let's see. Let's talk about Mark. And let's pray together. And there's 50 chairs down there of people that want to commit their Wednesday nights to that? Church, the, the plan moving forward, whether we have it all figured out or not, is for sure the ministry of the word. It's this word that we prioritize because we've seen, we've seen its power. It's sufficient for us. We, we might have other things that we include, but we, we know that this is enough for us. That we can live and die on the word of God. It's enough for us. So come a pandemic or turmoil from without or from within... We know and are under the conviction that we live, grow, and flourish by the word of God or we languish without it. Paul knew this. The the mobs, the riots, the imprisonment, the death threats didn't knock Paul off his course. He continues with the ministry of the word. Back in Berea, in Acts chapter 17, he continues. He goes back after what had happened in Thessalonica. And these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Paul's proclamation for them was an invitation to look into the scripture. 
is this is where Paul leaned with confidence. He leaned into the scripture with confidence, knowing that whatever he faces in Berea, from all these different categories that heard him preach the word, that the word was powerful enough to change them. It was sufficient for them. It was enough. So he didn't have to give himself to other priorities. He didn't have to give himself to other things that would have been good things. He gives himself to the proclamation of the word. And they could examine the scripture to verify that it was actually there. Uh, Paul doesn't push back against it. He actually invites it by basing and relying and rooting all of his teaching on the word. So they could actually go and see if these things were so because the scriptures could be read and understood. He thought that way and so he proclaimed the word. His conviction though wasn't just that the ministry of the word was powerful and sufficient but there's another implied conviction here. That everywhere Paul goes he has the conviction that his people that he's preaching and teaching to, that he's ministering the word of God to, are not just an audience. They're worshipers. This is why he doesn't try to entertain them primarily. This is why he doesn't try to earn money off of them by by having a a flashy display of of how he speaks and being eloquent. Actually, sometimes he dumbs it down so that they would make sure that they don't get the wrong idea about it. So he doesn't entertain them. He's not trying to earn money. He's trying to turn their hearts toward God. He's trying to reveal to them the goodness of God so that they would turn their hearts away from Artemis or their other idols and to the living God. And how do you go about doing that? How do you change people's hearts like that? Paul gives himself to the ministry of the word. He's convinced that that's how you do that. He puts the scripture in front of them because more than anything else, more than being an audience to be entertained, they're worshipers who were made to know and love God. He wants them to turn there. He wants them to worship this God. And so he turns them to God's word. So Paul's method was proclamation. But churches were planted and sprung up where the word was received. It wasn't just a matter of proclamation. There was also the reciprocation of that. There was reception. That is to say that for churches, the ministry of the word isn't one-sided. It's not just about proclamation, it's also about reception. Acts, right here in 17, contrasts the reception from the Thessalonians and the Bereans. And the contrast is over their reception of the word, how they received the ministry of the word, because the reception matters. The Bereans are often used as an example of, of how churches should listen. And I think rightly so. Listen to the description, they are called noble. <laughs> they listened eagerly. They daily turned to the word. Yes, we should be all of those things. Those all things should be true of us. But my fear is that the Bereans are still more noble than many churches today. Though we have at our fingertips, not just what Paul said here, but what Paul said at a lot of places. We have all the Old Testament and New Testament at our fingertips that we can read for ourselves daily, that we can eagerly enjoy But the reality is that many would rather be entertained than evangelized or equipped. Many would rather consume than participate. And Paul went with the conviction that the proclamation of the word is going to have a reception, and that reception matters. And he goes with the conviction that this people that he's speaking to is not just some passive audience. They are active worshipers who need their heart turned to God. We have the same conviction that you guys are not just an audience, that when we sit down after we sing, we're not sitting down as to say, be passive. 
as if you can turn on and off your worship and that worship of God is now off and now you just turn on something else. We sit down and we want to be active worshipers of the one true living God, not a passive audience, not spectators watching a show. We want active worshipers eager to receive manna from heaven, living water. And where does that come from? Not from me, from the word of God. That's why we open it and read it and give ourselves to it. As one pastor says, the church is not an audience to be entertained. It is an army to be empowered. Where do you get manna from heaven, living water? Where do you get empowered? Where do you get equipped? It's the word of God. Truly, we can, church, live, grow, and flourish by the ministry of the word of God, or we could perish without it. But again, proclamation is two-sided. It's proclamation and reception. And so are we eagerly ready to receive God's word? Is that our posture when we come before the Lord? Do we see it as his word breathed out as authoritative and instructive for us to change our hearts and minds, to inform and instruct everything we do? At Sojourn, we say that's our priority. That takes us together, worshiping God, loving his word together. It demands a response. We should not just be spectators. Now, one response that God has told us as a church to do together is to take the Lord's Supper together. Again, this is not just a passive receiving of bread and juice. You are to be active participants, taking this meal by faith in Christ. And so we would encourage you, if you have given your life to Christ, if you have trusted fully in Him, then come and be reminded, respond to His word by faith. Trusting in him and showing your trust in him by by reminding yourself of his body that was broken, of his blood that was poured out. And so come and, and stick out your hand, receive the bread, take the juice, and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. The response is for individuals. It is us for us as individuals to take and eat. If you're not a believer, we instead say you this you do not need to participate in this way. Participate in another way. Repent and believe in Jesus. He can give you eternal life. If you don't know what that means, you don't know what it means to follow Christ or repent or believe or have faith and you have all sorts of questions, we'd love to talk with you. Come find one of us. Find another believer and we'd love to share with you what it looks like to follow Christ. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal together. Let's pray. Lord, your word is everything to us. By it, we were formed. By it, we are transformed. Forgive us, Lord, where we take your word for granted, where we become passive, where we don't think and reflect the way we should, where we don't allow it to change us and make us look more like Jesus. God, you have been so gracious to give us your word. And it's so clear, Father, that you deserve the worship of all people. That is the mission we are on, and the gospel is the power of of God for salvation to all men. 
God, may may we be a people who are faithful to proclaim your word and obey your word and see it for what it is, God. Help us never to lose focus. It's so easy to compare and to compete, to allow pride to inform our decisions, Lord. Forgive us where we've done that. Keep us from doing it. Lord, we pray that if anything is said about sojourn, Lord, that it would be said that we are a people of your word. God, we just are grateful. We're grateful that you have done what you've done. You spoke us into existence, Lord, and you have spoken to us what it means to truly exist. May this meal honor you in Christ's name. Amen.